Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water, the podcast that examines a passage of scripture and asks the questions, what does it mean, and what does it call us to do? In today's episode, Suitable Helper, we're looking at the story of creation and the fall in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, and how God always loved us and had a plan to save humanity from the very beginning. Let's get started. We are back at the literal beginning today with the book of Genesis, the earliest account in the Bible of how humans came into existence. Most of you will have heard these stories before, perhaps numerous times, but we don't often think about the context in which these words were compiled. Because even as these words were and are inspired by God, they were most definitely written and collected by humans. For example, this particular book, along with the four others that follow it, is believed to be written by Moses. Now think about the history of God's people through the eyes of Moses. Even though he was raised more or less as a prince of Egypt, he knew he was a child of Israel. And with it, he knew that their people had suffered. His ancestors had relocated to new lands and faced all sorts of hardships. And most recently, his people had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years in a place where they believed nothing could ever be good, nothing could ever be in its rightful order, and nothing would move the hand of God to move on their behalf. And it is with this knowledge that Moses puts pen to paper, so to speak, He describes the sovereignty and purposefulness of God as the earth came into formation. It starts out like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Think about this for a moment. There was once a time where nothingness was reality emptiness, chaos, darkness. But even in this inescapable void, God was there. Which tells us something. God didn't need light to exist. So why then did God say in verse 3, let there be light, and there was light? Because light would be the source that all the things God created next would depend on. In the six days of creation, God would create in order, day and night, the sky, dry land and seas, the sun, moon, and stars, sky and sea creatures, and land creatures, including humans. Verse 31 tells us, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And not just good, but complete. God was finished with his creation work. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. We honor the seventh day, or Sabbath, today by declaring it a day of worship. If you ask me, sometimes it's more like workship. It's easy to get caught up in continuing the work of the previous week and forgetting to do what God did on the seventh day. Rest, delight in the goodness of creation, and be thankful for God's good work. But before God rested from making all the good things, we find also in chapter 2 that there's one thing that God declared was not good. 
We see in verse 18, the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so God did. God made a woman using one of the man's ribs. God tasked both of them with being fruitful and increasing in number and to take care of all the other created things. Things were still, by God's own words, very good. And then it all went wrong. In chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, we learn the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We often bemoan the existence of this tree. If only the tree hadn't been there, Adam and Eve might not have fallen from grace. But note that in the text, Neither Adam nor Eve questioned this imperative from God. Even though God forbade them to eat from this tree, it would still be their choice to obey. And for now, their faith in God allowed them to accept these things as truth. That is, until a variable came along, causing their trust in God to falter. Genesis chapter 3 introduces the serpent character who sows seeds of doubt and mistrust. Now, to be clear, God welcomes our questions and gives us permission to wrestle with what and how we believe, but God very much wants to be a part of that scene. What the serpent instigated here was an effort to separate the humans from God. He led them to believe that they wouldn't even need God anymore if only they could be just like God. The serpent tells them in verse 5, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The servant conveniently leaves out the part where God said this tree would lead to their death. He only emphasized that their dependence on God was what made them weak. And even though they knew better, they made the choice not only to go against God, but to be without God. Which is ironic that their downfall would be caused by their desire to be like God when in fact they were already like God and made in the image of God. Then came the cascading effect of their sin. They realized their nakedness and hid from God. Where once in the garden their nakedness represented the beauty of creation, it was transformed into shame. The serpent was cursed to a pitiful existence and would one day be destroyed by the woman's offspring. The woman would find pain and sorrow through her children and be subjugated to her husband. The man would labor in a different way that would require him toil until the day he died. To say these outcomes were severe would be a severe understatement. But I want us to come out from being under the notion that God was punishing them out of spite or vengeful hate. After all, God didn't control them in the garden, and likewise, God would not control their actions outside it. We can view God's words to them here not as a condemnation, but more like a prophecy. What happens to them from here on out would be the natural consequences of their actions. God still loved his creation very much and was sad to know that they would soon suffer without end.
We know this because God demonstrates two actions motivated purely by love. One, He expels them from the Garden of Eden. Yes, that was done out of love, because in the garden was a tree called the Tree of Life, and if they ate from it, they would be immortal. And God did not want humans to live forever in their fallen state, separated from God for eternity. Until such a time a Savior would unbreak what was broken, God gives humans the gift of mortality so that we could one day be reconnected to God. Two, God clothes Adam and Eve with garments made of animal skin to replace the clumsy ones that they had scrounged together out of fig leaves. This act of love would serve as an apt foreshadowing of how God would one day send his own son and shed the blood of his own son to redeem humanity. I don't know if this is the way you've heard this text interpreted in the past. My guess is that it's not, which is not surprising. What's weird is that these Genesis passages are used most often to explain marriage and gender roles, especially because the woman was definitely more complicit in the fall than the man was. Wildly untrue, by the way. And yet, these verses are the ones people use to defend the inferiority of women and other misguided and harmful views. So let's talk about that for a sec. When God set out to create the woman, Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 states, But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In the original Hebrew, the word for helper is the word ezer. This word denotes a helper, not in the sense of an assistant or a subordinate, but more as one who can save or rescue. After all, the same word ezer is used to describe God elsewhere in the Bible. Now, God did not create man to rule over the woman or the woman to rule over the man, but for the man and the woman to rule together over all the other created things, to be partners. After all, the only time in the days of creation God said, not good, was when the man was alone. But it is the arrogance and predictability of humans to take the words of God and manipulate them to meet our own needs. Especially as a woman studying scripture, it's disconcerting how much of it has been skewed repeatedly to serve the patriarchy. But this is exactly the kind of thing God foretold would happen on the other side of the garden. But the great hope in this tragic story is that just as God found a suitable helper for Adam, God sent a suitable helper for all humankind, an everlasting Ezer. Even in the throes of great disappointment, God gave the serpent this parting promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will Put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. God's intent from the start was to reclaim his beloved creation. They wouldn't be fallen and separated from him forever, and this would come to pass through the power of God's Son, Jesus, who would crush the forces of sin on its head. So knowing that God had a plan to connect with you since the beginning of time, what does that call you to do? 
Maybe it's realizing that God calls you good, very good, not because of anything you've done or earned, but simply because God created you. What can you do to amplify that goodness God sees and placed in you? Maybe it's being honestly broken before God. You know, God isn't surprised by our brokenness. But just like God had tried to draw out Adam and Eve from hiding after they had sinned, God wants you to come out of hiding too. When you're feeling broken, turn to God rather than away from God. Or maybe it's owning up to your mistakes and missteps. It's all too easy to shift the blame for your current state. I mean, Adam and Eve did it right away. It was the woman you gave me. It was the serpent who made me do it. Where are you directing the blame today for your maybe flimsy or non-existent relationship with God? Maybe a lot of the blame does lie on the outside, on people who've disappointed and hurt you. And maybe that much you can't do anything about but you can change what you do moving forward. Lean into whatever you feel led to do through this text. Take a step toward repairing the things that are broken in your life, especially yourself. And remember that you can find help in the God who brought the world into existence and then gave up everything to restore it to its intended purpose. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us since the beginning of the universe when all that was there was emptiness. Out of nothing, you displayed your limitless creativity and power and also made us in your image to use what you've given us in good ways, as you did. We know that our tendency is to break, but yours is to make and remake what's been broken. Thank you especially for sending us our own suitable helper, your son Jesus, who taught us and still teaches us about your heart for your creation. Remind us that we are good because you said so. Remind us nothing is broken beyond repair because you save us. Remind us you are nearer to us than we realize, even in the depths of our own brokenness. In Jesus' name, amen.